0: From Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino.
1: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal.
0: And this is the Vine Pair Podcast, Friday edition. Zach, how's it going? What have you been Doing reading? Well.
1: Yeah? <laughs> yeah, a couple of things. You know, lots of, as always, lots of good stuff on the site. I thought actually the, the highlight to me was or one of the highlights to me was a recent piece by Aaron Goldfarb. He gets lots of shine on this podcast, which, you know, he's a talented Mm -hmm. writer, no (laughs) surprise. Uh, His piece about how the signature cocktails that were created by, well, signature cocktails were sort of the key to success for a lot of brands, uh, spirits brands over over the years. And I think one of the things that was interesting is the way the story is sort of presented is like, you know, it starts with the Moscow Mule, which is this very kind of classic creation that was sort of designed to, to sell not just vodka, as it turns out, but also, you know, ginger beer, two yes. products that prior did not have a lot of, uh, you know, did not carry a lot of weight in the consumer market. And this is in the, like, uh, late 30s, early 40s. And what's interesting to me, one of the highlights of the story is actually how sometimes brands come up with cocktails that are successful and popular. And a lot of the other times, it's actually, like, their creation goes nowhere and it's some other drink, you know, Midori is a great example of this, mm-hmm. you know, their, their attempt to, uh, kind of launch this melancholy baby, which like, I think, uh, probably anyone could have told you was like, a, maybe not the greatest choice for like a drink and a drink name, but instead it's the melon ball and the Midori sour that kind of generate a lot of the sales for that brand in the seventies and eighties. And you know, just was interesting to look at the history of some of these drinks and to look at how, you know, sometimes you're able to, as a brand, you're able to sort of manufacture a trend intentionally. And a lot of other times you just kind of happen to get lucky yes. uh, or maybe having that drink, you know, trying to push that drink gets bartenders and others to, like, think about what they can do with your spirit in a way that is perhaps not what you intended, but still works out just fine for you.
0: Yeah, I thought that piece was interesting because it's not something we see too much of today anymore but back in the day like you said in the 70s and 80s you had these uh, brands that were coming out like uh, what was it peach schnapps right yeah um, and this kind of strategy to move bottles by creating these cocktails like the fuzzy navel um, and how how successful of a strategy that was back then but we, we see that less so today um, mm-hmm. I guess probably the apérol spritz is a good example of it, but but I don't think that that's quite what happened there, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's much more a, a story of Campari latching onto a trend and being like, yes, absolutely, exactly. we're going to take this to the moon, but we're not. We didn't really create it in the same way. I think. I think one of those things that it's totally true and it's mentioned in the piece is that. We do kind of exist in a different world from a cocktail creation and bartending standpoint than than in the '70s and '80s, where I think there were people who are interested in creating cocktails. There are classic cocktails or canonical cocktails that do come out of that time period, but it's not the same way in which in the you know from the, especially in the post two thousand era, there's a lot more. Kind of experimentation, riffing, and and frankly, bartenders being aware that creating a drink and branding it themselves was a good sort of long term move uh, for their own careers. You know, setting aside the spirits and involved, and so you know, you still have this period of time where bartending is a lot of you know playing the hits, and if the hit happens to be a Fuzzy Evil now, well, okay, that's fine, you can do that. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't. It, so it, yeah, it's much more driven by the spirits brands, which now. I think are more about you know being good at that is almost more about being really really paying very careful attention to what might be trending or what might have a chance to trend and getting behind it as opposed to trying to create it yourself.
0: Create something new, yeah, yeah, super interesting.
1: How about you, Joanna? What any any standouts for you?
0: Well, I love everything that we publish, but uh, you know, know. you say this every (laughs) week, and
1: that's and it's always true. We know.
0: Um, a fun like. Quick uh, historical piece that we published this week from Pete O'Connell was um, about B to the E or uh, Bud Budweiser Extra, which was Bud Bud's like failed attempt at an energy beer in the early 2000s. This is not something that was ever on my radar. Um, They wanted it to be called B to the E. It had, uh, you know, it had... uh, It was caffeinated with guarana and ginseng and all this and caffeine and all this other gross shit. And um, it didn't, you know, last very long. It was discontinued, I think, in 2008. Um, But it's so funny to think about this now, um, you know, in an age when energy drinks like really thrive. Um, We talked about this recently on the editorial team. The Celsius is very popular um, but also just, you know, the considering the success of Four loco and its ri- original iteration. Um, so I, I just thought this was a really interesting little piece of Drink's history. Um, I guess we can call it that, even though it happened in 2005.
1: You know, history is all around us, Joanna. It never yeah. stops. <laughs> no, no, But th- this piece was fascinating to me, too. I think there's something about the like the four loco driven like cap we've talked a lot actually recently and maybe again maybe because of the popularity of the espresso martini of this sort of like caffeine plus alcohol combo and it's you know sort of undeniable appeal to a segment of the drinking public and yet also it's sort of difficult to master uh, realities and i mean it blows my mind i never tried this product i was totally unaware you know I was probably very in the target demo, like as an early twenties male when this launched. Yeah, but like I never had any interest in this kind of thing. I didn't really drink four loca or anything like that either. Uh, but this idea of like we're just gonna take our standard Budweiser and add yeah. caffeine and stuff to it, just mm-hmm. like it, you know, in the piece, <laughs> it's like it, by most accounts it tasted terrible. And yeah, I'm not shocked. I I, I don't like the the other stuff. The the malt uh drinks and stuff like that that were caffeinated you could at least understand how it could arrive at something at a flavor profile that might be appealing or at least palatable to people but like no one ever has been like you know what like we need to do is add some things that on their own don't taste great to beer to cheap relatively cheap beer it is wild
0: (laughs) yeah and you can uh at least with four local, you have all the sugar to cover it up right
1: exactly yeah, you have mm-hmm. sort of masking agents such as they are to, you know, to yeah, get <laughs> dissuade you or keep you uh, aligned with the goal and not uh, wondering like what you what kind of terrible decision you made.
0: Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed that piece this week. For today's topic, this was from a listener who wrote in quite a while ago, actually, a Kyle Stringer wanted us to discuss grocery store wine. He lives Mm -hmm. in Texas where wine can be bought in the grocery store. And while he'd prefer to have neighborhood wine, uh, or while he'd prefer to go to a neighborhood wine shop, excuse me, you know, that doesn't always exist. And he ends up going to the grocery store. So, how can we find good bottles there? So, we thought we'd talk about this. We also, the topic also came up more organically from you, Zach. Um, So, yeah, I thought we could discuss. Grocery store wine.
1: (laughs) Well, first we should start with the caveat that for one of the two of us, grocery store wine is like an exotic concept.
0: No, we have grocery store wine product here in New York, which was a lesson I learned very early on in my drinking, (laughs) my time drinking. They are not the same.
1: Care to elaborate?
0: Do you know what wine product is? (laughs) No. So, yeah, so you can get wine product at, like, the grocery store or or the pharmacy, but it's not actual wine. Uh, That was something I learned when uh, I first purchased it back in the day. But, yes, you you cannot purchase wine from a grocery store in New York as you could beer or malt beverages.
1: Yeah. No, it's a very weird... Artifact, well, like all states, New York has some of its own bizarre liquor laws, beverage laws. Um, Here in Washington State, you can indeed buy wine at the grocery store. So maybe I'll I'll, I'll take the
0: the point here
1: on this a little bit. And as you mentioned, (laughs) Joanna, I did actually get asked this question in person not that long ago either um, by someone attending a class I was teaching who had not quite the same dilemma because this person has options to go to a grocery store or go to a wine shop in their neighborhood. But they did mention that they do buy a lot of their wine at the grocery store. And, you know, did we have, did I have some advice? And so I think it's important to start out by saying that in any of these conversations there, we're, we're going to largely be talking about grocery stores in the sort of large regional or national chain, not a small boutique grocery store, because I think it's a lot of what I'm going to say is not really applicable, or at least is much more of a case by case thing in your bigger chain grocery stores though. I think it's really important to understand, first and foremost, that yes, you can find good wine. However, you should understand that the sort of general driving premise behind the selection at any grocery store is really about forces that go way beyond you, the individual consumer. It has a lot to do with sort of larger scale purchasing agreements that these companies have with the big beverage alcohol distribution companies, and a lot about being able to move merchandise without a lot of labor, and mm-hmm. so I think the first of those is is important to unpack a little bit, and then we'll talk about the second one. So I think the first piece of it is is just, it, you know, you go to a grocery store that is a part of a uh, you know hundreds of store chain. The decisions about most of what to stock throughout the store, not just in wine or even beverage alcohol, are made at the corporate level. Individual stores may have some flexibility to stock specific product if it's in demand in their area certainly regionally there may be some variation especially when we're talking about you know these national chains or at least regional big regional chains but at a sort of broad level the way it's been explained to me before talking to people who work in this space is you know 80 to 90 percent of the selections in a lot of the stores and again going just beyond Alcohol, just to all things, are controlled at that corporate level because, you know, a lot of ways that makes sense, right? We think about how it is that grocery stores at this scale have product in stock all the time. Well, it's because they're running their own sort of internal distribution networks, maybe directly, or at least, you know, a lot of logistics go into making sure that the products that you and I want to buy are always on shelves or red or quickly restocked, and you have to do that by making a lot of large purchasing decisions and centralizing a lot of that. And of course, there's a lot of sort of arguments. For- of economy for scale there, uh, sorry, Arlene's for economy of scale there as well, where again, the, the, the more you can centralize that there are, I think pretty easy to understand benefits. Now, of course, that means that as a consumer, you are going to get a selection that's driven by broad trends, Mm -hmm. the, the sort of broad popularity of specific categories or wines, and not a lot of nuance. And so the, to, to the first answer I have for, for Kyle, for, uh, the person attending my class for listeners is, well, if you like to drink wines that are widely available and popular, then you should be in good shape. But presumably, you, if that is your case, are not writing into us because you're already satisfied by the selection at your grocery store.
0: Yeah, so I think what What feels really valuable to me here then is kind of figuring out a way to go about finding more of those gems at a grocery mm-hmm. store and what to look for outside of those big producers and things that you're usually like used to encountering at the grocery store. What kind of tips do you have, you know, in your in your expertise, Zach? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think that there are a few ways that you can have success, even if you are disinclined from you know, kind of looking at the more widely distributed wines. So one of them is that in places where wine is made, often you will see a small to medium-sized local wine selection. So obviously this doesn't apply to everyone throughout the country. Um, Some places you may be more or less in luck in this regard, but that can be one place where a more uh, store-specific or even just kind of like community-specific purchasing decision can be made. So sometimes that's a good place to look, you know, look for if you're in, again, a wine-producing state or near-ish to one. I also think that sometimes you can find interesting things that kind of, I don't know if they slip through the cracks exactly, but I think once you step outside of some of the more famous regions and varieties, sometimes you find random interesting wines on store shelves. Like, you know, our Mm -hmm. uh, currently uh, not-present co-host, Adam, loves Nebbiolo, as do I. And I've been surprised sometimes at grocery stores when I walk in and see what they might have from Barolo and Barbaresco in particular. I mean, I'm not talking about tiny producers, but, you know, they often have interesting diversity. And sometimes these are the categories where a grocery store, I guess the logic is kind of like, well, we have to have a little bit of something for everyone. And while we don't think most people walking into the wine section are looking for Barolo that person, you know, grocery stores serve a lot of people, and that person might come in every couple of days or something like that. And so we need to have a few selections for them. And again, I don't mean to say that this is going to be the the most obscure or even the most sort of special selection. Again, grocery stores, unless they specialize or have a, you know, kind of dedicated, specialized wine um, buyer, are probably not going to carry a lot of, like, expensive wine, especially expensive wine that's not very well known itself. But yeah. Again, you can do pretty well for yourself in those categories. I think you can do pretty well for yourself if you look at like uh regions of Spain or France that are maybe you know even relatively well known, basically you're not going to again, you're not going to find gems here. I don't think very often. Maybe you do, maybe you find something that's just been, you know, kind of who knows exactly how it ended up on the shelf that happens in big companies for sure. But I think a lot of the times it's more like if you are looking for the really really well-known kinds of wine. If you're looking for Napa cab, well you're going to find probably what you would expect to find. Well-known producers, you're going to pay your kind of full, you know, standard markup, if not more, and you're going to just that's if that's what you want, that's great. If you're looking for, you know, obscure wines, you're probably going to be very very you know, disappointed with your options. So it's kind of kind of be in that middle ground, right? Stuff that is well-known enough or desirable enough to people that the store feels obliged to stock a little bit of it, but maybe they're you know, because it's not something that they're looking at purely as just how do we kind of drive revenue through this specific category, they may be inclined to bring in, you know, slightly more interesting or at least, you know, bottles that are fairly priced.
0: Yeah. So actually, let's talk about price, because I think that's a really big component in why people shop at the grocery store for wines. And, you know, is this is this a scenario where... You know, you'd want to avoid something that's priced on the lower side. Um, is price an indication of quality here? <laughs> is that a stupid question? <laughs> no, I
1: don't think so at all. No, no, no. I think it's a really interesting question because I think, again, you know, we come back to sort of this, the, the a fundamental thing that I think people should understand about this. And this isn't even meant critically exactly. It's just meant honestly that in a grocery store setting, Wines are just skews, like everything else, right? They're right. a product that the store is hoping to sell for more than it paid for it. And whatever moves is likely to get prominence. So sometimes what mm-hmm. moves is you know, inexpensive wine that can be sold at a very at a relatively low price that has often like an eye grabbing label or name or both. If it has, you know, a score that starts with a nine uh, that's even better. And sure. you know, the the store doesn't really care much beyond that, right? They care about can they buy a lot of it for relatively cheap and sell it for a little bit more and move on. And that is again not like a bad thing. Sometimes these wines are quite good or certainly at least palatable, and <laughs> they're just they're just not being chosen because anyone believes in them particularly, except as a you know, profit generator. I think the other piece of it is, is that, you know, there are definitely Approaches to things in the grocery store and wine can sometimes be one of them where, you know, the grocery store views wine sometimes as, a, if not a loss leader, at least a segment of the, you know, overall store where they don't have to make the same kind of profit as they do on certain other products. I mean, again, wine isn't perishable in the same way that a lot of other things in the grocery store are. So if it sits on the shelf for a little longer, it's not the end of the world. And there's value in the grocery store, too, for the shelves looking kind of full, which, again, speaks to why you sometimes will find interesting, obscure things if you poke around a little bit because they kind of need to fill those sections out. They need the, the shelves to look full so that you as a consumer are not like, well, wait a second. I'm in the wine section, but half of the you know the bottle fronts are empty. Like That's not good for business. And I think the last thing is like I don't think you can necessarily – Go too astray, kind of being like, well, i you know I have a budget, and I want to stick to that in any setting, whether that's a wine shop or a grocery store. I do think that where I tend to be at least cautious is anytime you're like you see something in a grocery store that's like you know on sale, you know, save four dollars, like the reason that it's being displayed that way almost always is because the price the quote unquote sale price you're paying is the normal markup price, and they just mm-hmm. don't list it at the regular at the like sort of what's being portrayed as the non-sale price because like you know again it's just marketing right it's just trying to get you they want to move the reason they have yeah they have 10 cases of a wine that they're screaming to you is a huge deal because it's five dollars off but like you know they're still making their margins i'm pretty confident on that almost always you know unless maybe it's a weird situation where like someone made a mistake at corporate and they bought way too much of it and they're just trying to unload it. But even then, is that really the wine you want to be buying? I mean, like, I don't know. It depends on what it is and what you want from it. But like, you know, grocery store wine in general is, is I think a great option for people who are like, I need a bottle of wine for right now. Right. That is so many people. That's why wine in grocery stores does so well, because most people don't plan their drinking, you know, far in advance. They have the, the shopping cart and, whatever they're eating that night in front of them or the next couple nights and like well i guess i want some wine to go with this or i just want some wine so yeah yeah, i think that's i think that's just like as long as you kind of accept that the grocery store wine selection is not and and the wine in the grocery store is not necessarily there to give you the greatest wine experience you'll ever have then it's like perfectly functional
0: yeah and we've also talked about like the stu- stigma around luxury wines um, being in grocery stores. And I think that's an interesting part of this conversation as well. But it strikes me as a good opportunity for champagne um, yeah. and other, uh, other, you know, more standardized wines, like celebratory wines and more expensive wines to be available there too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the grocery store has the capacity to do things that are kind of nice sometimes, like have a lot of sparkling wine that's already cold for the person who's like, oh, I'm literally on my way to a party and I need to get something. Um, You know, like that's an area where they can do, I mean, not that wine shops don't have that many of them do, but, you know, they tend to be, space tends to be more of a premium in those situations and they can't necessarily afford to have, you know, as many bottles chilled or whatever. I also think that like, you know, a thing that's kind of interesting about, You know, grocery store wine is sometimes you have the opportunity to, you know, like oftentimes they will give you like the grocery stores around me often will give you like a discount on six bottles or certainly more than that. So, again, it's not like there's nothing to recommend getting wine at the grocery or nothing to say like, oh, you should definitely not get wine at the grocery store. But the other reason that I do want to talk about this for a moment, and again, understand that there are lots of you listening, including like Kyle who wrote in, where the grocery store is really the only convenient avenue to get wine. And I and look, I totally get that. Like some of you just that's just not, you know, the thing I'm gonna talk about is not really an option or just is maybe interesting to note, but just curiosity to you all. But I do think that it's important to understand that the other reason why the wine selection is the way it is and most grocery stores and the reason why it's the shelves are set up the way they are is because those are set up to run the way the rest, almost the entirety of the grocery store runs, which is with minimal staffing, minimal intervention from people who are working there. Right. And I think we've seen this. I mean, again, like I'm not, we're not a grocery store podcast, but you know, like a lot of the grocery stores around me have, you know, over the years emphasized more and more self checkout as a way to cut back on Mm -hmm. the number of people they have to employ to, you know, get people to scan and pay their groceries. And if they can convince you, the customer, that you can do all that for yourself and they have to have one person kind of overseeing, you know, six or eight checkout machines, you know, that's better for the business, even if it's maybe not better for anyone else. And I think the same thing is true with wine to some extent. There are grocery stores around me, even some of the ones that are associated with the big, uh, you know, grocery companies that do have a sort of wine steward person who's responsible for the, selection maybe they even have a couple people who do that but those people are you know there some of the time they have other responsibilities often and they're not kind of with some exceptions not really like roaming the the wine section asking if you're not gonna
0: go ask them yeah questions or for help yeah yeah.
1: and so you kind of end up in this situation where like most of the rest of the grocery store with the exception of maybe like you know your your meat counter or your deli counter or whatever in a situation where like you know if you know what you're looking for or have a pretty good idea what you're looking for, and you feel pretty confident in your ability to pick a bottle of wine that you like, then great. Like the grocery store offers lots of choices. It's not, they're fairly priced for the most part. It's not like an inherently bad place to buy wine. But if you're looking to expand your horizons, if you're looking to learn something, if you're looking to try something new, or you're just not sure what you're looking for, I think it can be a really intimidating space, actually, and a space that tends to reinforce people's pre existing preferences like mm-hmm. the, because if you kind of look at the selections and you're just like oh my god it's just a wall of wines maybe it's broken out by variety maybe it's broken out by a place of origin etc but like there's often like you know maybe there's some shelf talkers maybe there's some stuff that the distributor printed up to try and get you to buy that bottle instead of the other bottle but like you're not in the end really interacting with a person so now you're kind of relying on what the you materials you pro- like already yeah. yeah or the materials provided or what you look up on your phone or all these things and it's just like, to me, the biggest argument against buying wine in the grocery store, if you don't have to, is like, it is a kind of alienating, impersonal experience. And like, look, we are undeniably mostly pretty romantic about drinking on this podcast. Like, <laughs> we are working in this industry and we talk about it because we love it. And to me, you know, yes, the the most important sort of ele- romantic element of wine is the drinking of it for sure. But the... Choicing, the choosing of it, the selection of it, the the procuring of it is a part of it too, to me. And, you know, the grocery store is a great place to meet your sort of basic needs. But in the same way that to me, there's a kind of, yeah, a kind of romance in getting certain products some of the time from someone who's a little more passionate, like going to a specialty butcher or a cheesemonger or a farm stand or something like that has carries with it, not just, I think the idea in our heads that the product is going to be better, although we certainly hope that that's true, but also that in a way we're having an interaction with a person who in selling us this product is expressing themselves in a meaningful way. We're not just consuming. And I think, you know, this is again, a much broader point than specifically about wine. So pardon me, but I'm feeling philosophical this Friday, but like, (laughs) you know, consuming as the as a mode of self-expression, is something that we all do a lot of, and we talk a lot about it, and we, you know, we all kind of accept it in a way. And in late stage capitalism, that's what we all do. But I think that when you can add a little bit of humanity to it, a little bit of more intent to it, when you have the opportunity and the time and the, you know, and frankly the the money to do it, and those are all considerations that not everyone has all the time. I think it can be nice to do so. So that ends my philosophical dissertation on this topic.
0: There you go. Well. I think this was a good uh you know, lesson for jo- me wait, in grocery. What? I
1: have a question for you though. Oh, go, go. Do you wish you could buy wine, not wine product in the grocery stores in New York? Or is it like are you just like cool with it the way it is?
0: You know, it's kind of I love I love to look at the wine selection in grocery stores outside of New York, but in especially in like European countries. Mm-hmm. Like because it's so different there, right? Like even in yeah. just the convenience stores you can get really great wine. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think especially it's hard because in New York, liquor stores are pretty much everywhere. So it's yeah. it's not hard to get wine. I guess outside of New York City, it would be nice to just go to a grocery store and get the bottle, you know, your standard bottles and things that you know you like for a Wednesday night dinner, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I do wish that that was available to us. Um, it's just it's just kind of a weird thing that it's not. Um, yeah. But I can't say, it's never like my impulse in other states to just go to the grocery store for wine um, just because it's it's not a something that we have here. Um, but yeah, I mean I, I understand, I get the kind of pros and cons of it um, and kind of the challenges around it for people who don't have s- neighborhood shops available to them. So yeah, I mean, I think it would be nice if, you know, if grocery stores were able to have more wine curation available to them. But I but I, <laughs> I also understand the limitations there, too.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the last thing I would say is, you know, we, we love getting these questions. You can email us, podcast yes. at Um If you have thoughts on grocery store wine, if you have favorites, if you have tips that we didn't mention or tips that we did mention, you know, that's yes, all really for interesting strategy. for us.
0: Yeah. Well, Zach, I hope you have a great weekend and I will talk to you next week.
2: Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere if you are listening to this on a device right now through an app however you got this audio please drop a review it really helps everyone else discover the show and now for some totally awesome credits so the vine podcast is recorded in our new york city headquarters and in seattle washington in zach Chabal's basement it is recorded by zach mastered and produced by zach he loves all the credit keep giving it to him drop his name in the reviews he's gonna love hearing how much you love him it is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Shirino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone
0: who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.